Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything else that I happen to find strange or interesting. I am your host, Al. Today we will be talking about one of my favorite pastimes, and that is tabletop role-playing games. When someone says role-playing game, there is probably one thing that instantly comes to mind, and that is one of the world's most famous RPGs, Dungeons & Dragons. D&D has a long and storied history. Regardless of how you feel about the current state of the game, one cannot deny the impact that Dungeons & Dragons has had on society and popular culture, from its humble roots, through the satanic panic of the 80s, to the mainstream popularity it enjoys today. What once was a hobby associated with nerds gathered around a table in the basement is now openly enjoyed by celebrities like Vin Diesel, Felicia Day, and Stephen Colbert. Live roleplay podcasts and web series like Critical Role have helped bring RPGs into the public eye. There is also the recent movie, Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. As of the time of this recording, I have not seen it yet, but I've heard it's actually quite good. The game has a worldwide fan base and has inspired many artists, authors, musicians, game designers, and content creators. All of this has its origin in wargaming. War games have a long history. One of the earliest examples of a war game is the Indian game Chaturanga, which means four limbs. The name is believed to be in reference to the four types of military units used in ancient India. Infantry, cavalry, war elephants, and charioteers. Not all of the rules of this game are known, but it is believed to have been very similar to modern chess, with the objective being to capture the opposing king. In 1644, a German named Christopher Weichmann released The King's Game. Each side had 30 pieces representing different types of military units. Another important milestone in wargaming was the Kriegsfeld, literally war game, released in 1780 by German mathematician Johann Christian Ludwig Helwig. War games were originally developed as a form of entertainment, but Helwig believed that it could be useful to the military. Many game historians consider Prussian officer George Heinrich Rudolf Johann von Rieswitz to be the father of modern wargaming. In 1824, he gave a demonstration of his game called Instructions for the Representation of Tactical Maneuvers Under the Guise of a War Game for Prince 
Wilhelm of Prussia. Von Rieswitz's game was developed as a way to teach battlefield tactics to junior officers. According to an article on the Historical Miniatures Gaming Society website, one of the generals had this to say about von Rieswitz's work. This is not a game. This is training for war. I must recommend it to the whole army. Von Rieswitz created rules for different types of units, movement, and terrain. These rules were important to understand in part due to the changing state of warfare. One side might be armed with rifles that had an effective range of a few hundred feet, while the other side might be armed with weapons that had a better range or rate of fire. Not understanding the strengths and weaknesses of different units could spell disaster on the battlefield. As the years went on, other game designers developed rules for both contemporary and ancient warfare. In the early 1970s, Gary Gygax and Jeff Perrin released Chainmail, a game that focused on medieval warfare. The game was later expanded to include rules for single combat, jousting, and fantasy elements such as wizards and dragons. This was an important step that would lay the foundations for what was to come. In 1974, Gygax and Dave Arneson released the first version of Dungeons and Dragons. The most significant difference between D&D and the war games of the time was that a miniature now represented a single character instead of a unit of men. No longer was that figure of a guy with a sword and a shield just a nameless soldier. He could be a heroic warrior, an evil villain, or an unaligned mercenary selling his blade to the highest bidder. Dungeons and Dragons drew influence from various sources, including the works of authors such as J.R.R. Tolkien, Michael Moorcock, and Jack Vance. The world was not only populated by humans, but also elves, dwarves, halflings, orcs, goblins, and of course, dragons. As the game grew, the designers incorporated creatures from various world mythologies, including Pegasi, Unicorns, Medusa, Giants, Ogres, Ghosts, Zombies, and Fairies. Some of the earliest original D&D monsters were inspired by a set of plastic toys, notably the Rust Monster, the Owlbear, and the Boule. According to Tim Kask, one of the early playtesters of Dungeons & Dragons and the first editor of Dragon Magazine, there was once an unknown company in Hong Kong that made a bag of weird animal things that were then sold in what once were called dime stores or variety stores for like 99 cents. 
I know of four other very early monsters based on them. Gary and I talked about how hard it was to find monster figures, and how one day he came upon this bag of weird beasts. He nearly ran home, eager as a kid to get home and open his baseball cards. Then he proceeded to invent the Karen Crawler, Umber Hulk, Rust Monster, and Purple Worm, all based on those silly plastic figures. The one that I chose was known in the Greyhawk campaign as the Bullet for its shape, but had only amorphous stats and abilities not being developed. Gary told me to take it home, study it, and decide what it was and what it could do. This brings us to another iconic monster of Dungeons and Dragons, the Lich. The origin of the word comes from Middle English and is a term used to describe a dead body. Some cemeteries even have a structure known as a Lich Gate. This is a roofed structure at the graveyard's entrance. The deceased was placed on a stand under the Lich Gate until the clergy arrived to perform the funeral rites. In some English traditions, the spirit of the last person buried in the churchyard stood guard at the gate. Lich gates play a role in some wedding traditions as well. It is believed that a wedding party must never pass through a lich gate, for that would bring about misfortune. As a D&D monster, the lich first appeared in the 1975 supplement Greyhawk, where it was described as the skeletal corpse of a magic user or cleric. Unlike most undead, the Lich was not a mindless monster. It retained all of the memories and skills it had from its past life. In a 2007 forum post on enworld.com, Gygax confirmed that his inspiration for the Lich came from a story by Gardner Fox called The Sword of the Sorcerer. This story is part of the Kothar Barbarian Swordsman book series. The creature, named Afgorkon, is described as follows. And that dead thing, wrapped in funeral garments, brown with age, was what lay buried in it. He had blundered into a tomb. His lips twisted in a grin. Let the dead shelter him who sought life in the sanctuary. He was about to turn and close the iron door when the hairs on the back of his neck stood up. The withered brown body on the form. He could make out bits of whitened bone and gristly fragments of flesh and hair protruding from the rotted cloth. Was moving. It sighed, as if it breathed immeasurable distances away. Its chest lifted and fell in a slow pulsing. Dwalkov the Warhammer! What was this thing? The corpse turned its head so it could look at Kothar out of its empty eye sockets. The barbarian felt the touch of eyes, even though there were no eyes to see or be seen. 
He stiffened, his flesh crawled, his long fingers took a firmer grip on his sword haft. Even as he stared, the lich sat up. You came at last, Kothar. I had almost given up hope for you. The young giant opened his mouth to speak, but could not. The cadaver swung what was left of its legs over the side of the stone slab and stepped down onto the hard dirt floor. A peculiar sound rose upward from the bones of its throat. A lassitude came upon Kothar. He began to sway back and forth, as if tired in every muscle. Hi, he was weak too. So weak he could not stand up. The lich was doing this to him in some hellish manner he did not understand. In Dungeons & Dragons, the lich was formerly a high-level wizard or priest. This gives the creature access to a wide variety of powerful spells. A lich possesses other abilities as well. It is immune to attacks from normal weapons, can cause fear in low-level characters, and can paralyze with a touch. The Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition Monster Manual gives another reason as to why a lich can be a dangerous opponent. These creatures may have had decades, perhaps even centuries, to research new magic. Thus, a party of adventurers that are brave or foolish, enough to confront a lich, might encounter spells they have never seen before. These factors can make the lich an unpredictable opponent. But a lich is no mere monster waiting patiently in a lost tomb for hapless adventurers to stumble upon it. A lich can be a fully fleshed out villain with plans for world domination. They can work through a network of spies and agents, perhaps even manipulating the heroes into doing it its bidding. However, while most liches are evil, this does not always have to be the case. On rare occasions, liches can take other alignments and even be helpful. The lich Afgorkhan mentioned before gives Kothar a magic sword so the barbarian can destroy a witch, though this gift does come with the condition that he gives up his wealth. The process to become a lich varies, but for evil wizards, it usually requires the consumption of a potion made from vile or unwholesome ingredients. After consuming the potion, the drinker will die, but if things go according to plan, they will arise as a lich. The ritual also requires creating an, an item called a phylactery. In order to truly destroy a lich, an adventurer must locate and destroy this item. In recent years, some game designers have opted to remove the word phylactery from their in-game terminology because it has a connection to a real-world religion. A phylactery, also known as a tefillin, is a small box attached to a leather strap. 
Inside the box are several pieces of paper inscribed with verses from the Torah. Adult Jews will wear them on their arm or head during their morning prayers. In Orthodox Judaism, only men wear the tefillin. Other branches of Judaism allow both men and women to wear one. The creation of a tefillin is quite a process in and of itself, with the maker often required to take a ritual bath, follow exact specifications, and use materials considered acceptable under Jewish law and tradition. The practice of keeping one's soul hidden to cheat death has a parallel in Russian folklore in the form of Koshi the Immortal. This character might be based on Khan Konchak, a chieftain of the nomadic tribes from the Eurasian steppes. The historical figure fought against various Russian princes until his death in 1187. In some traditions, he was believed to be over 100 years old. As a literary figure, Koshi is depicted as an old man with magical powers. He is called the Immortal, or the Deathless, because it was said he avoided death by hiding his soul in a needle, which in turn was hidden in an egg, which was then hidden in a duck, which was then hidden in a rabbit. And no, I don't know how that is even supposed to work. But in any case, the vessel containing his soul is hidden in a chest and buried on a distant island in the ocean. It has been suggested that this life-protecting spell might be derived from Turkish amulets that were shaped like an oval and sometimes contained an arrowhead. Koshi is depicted as an antagonist in many folktales. He tries to lure beautiful women away to become his wife. Sometimes he does this with magic, other times with gold. Koshi is usually defeated by a stock character from Russian folklore called a bogatir. If you want to learn more about this type of character, go back and listen to episode 234 of the Geekery in General podcast. This is an episode I did a while ago on legendary weapons from Russian folklore, and I go into a little bit of detail on this heroic archetype. In the end, Koshi is defeated by the hero with the aid of magical creatures, or sometimes due to the intervention of Baba Yaga. Over the years, liches have appeared in other works of fiction. A lich appears in the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Thing on the Doorstep. In this case, though, the lich is referring not to a wizard who preserved his body after death, but rather a dead body being controlled through occult means. A character identified as a lich appears in the Clark Ashton Smith story, The Stairs in the Crypt. This story is about a necromancer named Avalzant, who dies, then is sealed in a crypt by his students. The reason for the resurrection is not entirely clear, but is described as follows. 
On this question, the philosophers remain divided. One school holds to the theorem that it was the unseemly brevity of the burial rites which prevented the release of the spirit of Avalzant from its clay, thus initiating the unnatural revitalization of the cadaver. Others postulate that it was the necromatic powers inherent in Avalzant himself which were the sole causative agent in his return to life. After all, they argue, and with some cognance, one who is steeped in the power to affect the resurrection of another should certainly retain, even in death, a residue of that power sufficient to perform a comparable revivification of oneself. These, however, are queries for a philosophical debate for which the present chronicler lacks both the leisure and the learning to pursue to an unequivocal conclusion. Later in the story, it is implied that such spontaneous resurrections are possible if a wizard is laid to rest without the proper precautions being taken. As for the crypt itself, it was sealed from without by pious ceremonials which rendered the portals thereunto inviolable to the mummy in its present mode of existence as one of the living dead. Such precautions were customary in the land of Ulfar, which was the abode of many warlocks and enchanters during the era whereof I write, for it was feared that wizards seldom lie easy in their graves, and that, betimes, they are wont to rise up from their deathly somnolence and stalk abroad to wreak a dire and ghastly vengeance upon those who wronged them when they lived. Smith's Lich's character is interesting because it has features found in other types of undead. The Lich's body is described as having been immersed in salt before burial to dry out the skin. This step was used during the mummification process in ancient Egypt. During the story, Smith seems to use the terms mummy and lich interchangeably. Like a revenant, the creature seeks revenge on the living, and like a vampire, it consumes human blood. Holy symbols seem to be able to seal away the lich, as the story mentions a pentagram on the crypt that prevents it from leaving. The Lich escapes its tomb by taking control of a pack of creatures referred to as ghouls. Once among the living, the Lich sets out to feast on the blood of its former students and then goes after a group of monks. Alvonsant attacks the abbot, and he accidentally stabs the Lich with a silver knife. This kills him, and the monks only need to burn the lich's remains to exile him from the mortal world. Undead wizards also appear in the works of Robert E. Howard. Most notably is Thulsa Doom. This character would appear as a foe to both Conan the Barbarian and Cull the Conqueror of Atlantis. Unlike his depiction in the 1982 Conan movie, 
Methuselah is originally described as having a face like a skull with fires in the eye sockets. The motif of the undead wizard has continued through the years, with liches appearing as a boss enemy in many video games. We can also look to cartoon characters like Skeletor from He-Man and Mumra from the Thundercats. I have also heard some people compare the character Voldemort from Harry Potter to a lich as well, because this wizard breaks up his soul and stores it in several items in order to prevent himself from dying. But why are liches popular villains in the works of fantasy literature? I think it is because the lich is the ultimate perversion of the natural order of things. He has conquered death itself by continuing to exist in an unnatural state and seeks to conquer the living as well. They are the archetypical Dark Lord, a powerful force of evil that the hero must contend with. The Lich was intelligent and powerful in his life before death, which makes it all the more satisfying when the hero finally takes him down. So there's a little bit of folklore and some possible influences for the Dungeons & Dragons monster, the Lich. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at poigamestudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at poigamestudio at gmail.com.